0: Welcome to Church Ahead, the weekly Christian podcast talking about big questions facing the future of church with Rev L all the way from the north of England. Episode 59, 200 years, at Manchester Cathedral that is. Last week we said all the bishops are the same, politically that is, with very few exceptions they are consistently in agreement to the left of centre within the British political landscape of today. And there's a striking level of uniformity. A senior church leader who openly supported the Conservative Party or voiced views that you might find in, say, the Daily Telegraph newspaper or Daily Mail or Spectator would be very brave. They would be swimming against a strong tide as a beleaguered minority. I can't even think of any such bishops in the Church of England. Remember the poor Brexit supporting Bishop of Shrewsbury from last week? One of our listeners told me he's no longer a bishop, but gone back to parish ministry. I can only imagine how hard life would be for any bishop who will not support the left-wing causes of the day. So it's simple then, isn't it? The bishops are a bunch of lefties. Well, no, not quite as simple as that. What I think we need to do is look at the political bias in church life over a longer period of time and look at where the senior clergy stand on a range of issues over this longer time frame. So today we're going to audit the political pronouncements of Manchester Cathedral over a period of more than 200 years I think we're going to see there is a pattern but it's not simply a bias towards left-wing progressive Marxism. There's a bit more to it than that. When I say Manchester Cathedral I mean the Collegiate Church which has stood there for 600 years and which became the Mother Church Cathedral of the newly formed Manchester Diocese of the Church of England in 1847. So in the earliest part of our time frame today, it predates the diocese, and it wasn't actually a cathedral at that point. Now you might think that when the Church of England got round to setting up a diocese in the mid-19th century, two generations late in my view, that the ancient collegiate church would be thrilled with the honour of being its mother church cathedral. Not at all. They were dragged kicking and screaming into the diocese project, which they saw as dragging them down into an organisation dominated by the urban poor, who were not their sort of people and didn't have the money to pay for anything. They really did not want the burden of subsidising poor people's churches all over the slums of Manchester. The cathedral's 600th anniversary was quite a milestone and so the University Press produced a beautifully illustrated book edited by Jeremy Gregory, Nottingham University Professor of Church History and I rely quite heavily on this gorgeous book and on some of the cathedral's own displays to mark the moment. So our story today begins in 1819. Manchester was shock city, mills and factories springing up all over the place. Slum housing thrown up for new urban workers, industrial revolution in full swing. These people had no meaningful political representation in Parliament, and a lot of issues crying out for help, such as the price of bread artificially inflated to protect farmers from competition. It's August... 1819, and a crowd of 60,000 people are gathered in St Peter's Fields for a peaceful protest rally. Men, women and children march from all over the region. They were squashed into a tight crowd to hear the star speaker, the radical Henry Hunt. The mood was like a carnival, and the only thing the crowd were armed with that day was their sandwiches. Now you probably know what happened next and why this is the single most symbolically important political event in the history of Manchester. Soldiers on horses rode into the crowd and cut down hundreds of people with their swords. Eighteen-ish fatalities with hundreds injured. It became known as the Peterloo Massacre, combining the place named St Peter's Fields, with Waterloo, which was four years earlier. This was one of the most important turning points in the political life of this country, certainly for the urban working class. It still resonates powerfully today, and for the 200th anniversary, Mike Lee made his film. I suppose the cinematic approach was to contrast the carnival family fun with the brutality of the soldiers and in the middle the Magistrates, panicking and not knowing quite what to do. So what was the Cathedral's role at Peterloo? Well, one of the displays put up for the 600th anniversary has a timeline of key events, and as you might expect there was a paragraph for Peterloo. It mentions Mary Hayes, 44 year old mother of six and three months pregnant, was trampled by the cavalry horses. She was disabled from her injuries, suffered daily fits and gave birth in December prematurely, dying as she gave birth to her seventh child. So why does Mary get into the cathedral 600-year timeline? Because her funeral was at the cathedral. You see how the cathedral clergy are there to minister to the bereaved and provide a fitting send-off ...for the victims of political oppression. At least she found God's mercy at Manchester Cathedral. Is that it then? Not exactly. Manchester Cathedral had a much more active role... ...in the events of Peterloo than you would think... ...reading that 600-year timeline. You see, in order to get the slaughter started at Peterloo... ...the magistrates had first to read the Riot Act telling the crowd to disperse. So who do you think read the right act, and what institution did he represent? Let's see now which occupational group are trained to read a text in a loud authoritative voice before a large crowd of people. Quite a few of the collegiate fellows, that's the cathedral clergy, were magistrates, and so the proud volunteer was Reverend C.E. Ethelstone, one of the cathedral clergy. But don't worry about him being left to do it on his own. No, he was backed up by Reverend W.R. Hay. I wonder what it felt like to read the riot act, triggering the most brutal political act of repression of the century. I wonder if it felt a bit like reading morning prayer back in the cathedral. So take no notice of the cathedral display about Peterloo. They facilitated the massacre. And to be fair, they acknowledged this in their anniversary commemoration service in 2019. Aren't you being a bit hard on them? Surely there was no police force then, and the magistrates were overwhelmed by the scale of the crowd. You can't expect clergy to be experts in crowd control. Perhaps more telling is not what they did in the heat of the moment with a big crowd in front of them, but the message of support and gratitude they sent to the soldiers afterwards. A gesture of solidarity with the soldiers. OK, crowd control might be beyond the skill set of clergy, but let's look at something more religious, very much within their skill set. Just ten years later, in 1829... Something more home territory for a cathedral cleric in eighteen twenty nine Catholic emancipation legislation was coming to before Parliament to allow Roman Catholics to vote and enter certain professions that they were that had been confined to Protestants. Surely, our spiritual leaders at the cathedral would throw their weight behind this rather modest equality reform. No, the warden culvert and all the cathedral clergy signed a petition against it. So much for cathedral equality and diversity. Let's look at one more issue from back then, a bit more than 200 years ago. The biggest moral issue of the late 18th, early 19th century. Slavery. Surely we're on the right side of the angels this time. Well, there was a sermon in 1787 comparing slavery of the day to the people of Israel in Egypt. And I understand that 40 to 50 black people were in attendance, and the warden, Ashton, was supportive. But how solid was the cathedral support for abolition? In this book of today, in the same chapter as we read about Peter Lu, we get this, I quote, the Manchester Anti-Slavery Committee was packed with radicals and dissenters, along with Quakers. But the College, read Cathedral clergy, were conspicuously absent. Of quote. So there were church ministers around Manchester in the vanguard of racial justice, but not the Church of England Cathedral clergy. Are you starting to get the picture The cathedral clergy of about two centuries ago were reactionary rather than progressive. They weren't very enthusiastic about what most people listening to this would regard as progress. One of their favourite toasts at dinner was For King and Country and Down with the Rump, i.e. the Rump of Parliament from the 17th century Civil War. They were patriotic royalists who looked down on the nonconformist Manchester clergy who got carried away with jumping up and down about slavery abroad and poor working conditions in the mills at home. Those pesky Unitarians, Methodists and the like had to pay church rates to the cathedral until as late as 1868, and as far as their own new diocese was concerned, trying to build new churches for the poor. They made sure that wherever there was a wedding or a funeral, the parishioners paid two sets of church fees, one to the Poultry Parish Church and one, of course, to the cathedral, for as long as they could get away with it until the bishop stepped in. Yes, I think we've got it. The Manchester Cathedral clergy were privileged people ministering to rich people in a rich church, and they wanted to preserve their income and privilege for as long as possible. That was then. What about more recent times? Well, let's look at the party political affiliation of the cathedral clergy over the past century or so. William Temple, Bishop of Manchester, used a cathedral servant when he was new to Manchester in 1921 to promote the importance of the Labour movement, by which he was taken to mean the Labour Party and trades unions. He went on to become Archbishop of Canterbury and not surprisingly there's a church named after him in Withenshaw. In 1983, Canon John Atherton wrote The Scandal of Poverty, Attacking Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Government Policies on Welfare and Public Spending, although his later work was more accepting of the growing market economy and its benefits to Manchester. Now, I'd like to set a challenge for any listeners of Church Ahead. See if you can find any verbal support from the cathedral clergy for Margaret Thatcher. I can't find any. Next, in the 21st century, both Dean Govinders and Canon Andrew Shanks have singled out far-right political groups for active condemnation the British National Party and English Defence League. Now leave aside the collateral damage and whether their comments might provoke those groups' working-class supporters in ways that are not constructive. Thankfully, none of those groups have ever gained much traction or support in Manchester, and I think it may have been wiser just to leave them alone, denying them the oxygen of publicity. What I can't help noticing is that for over 100 years, Manchester Cathedral clergy political pronouncements consistently say nice things about politicians on the left of the spectrum and pick fights with those on the right, regardless of whether they're moderate right or far right. Their targets range from three times democratically elected prime minister to more fruity, marginal and sometimes nasty groups. But the point is, the criticism always goes to the right the support always goes left as it happens i was in the cathedral last sunday morning for a service where the residential canon in his sermon complained about meeting people who want the cathedral to say what the tory press would want to hear ha ha i've never heard him complain about pressure coming onto him from the left actually went to three services that morning on a sort of church crawl, homework for a future series of Church Ahead. Only in the cathedral did I hear a party political sideswipe. And what a surprise. The sideswipe was a left hook, from the left wing, another swipe against the right. So what should we say? Are the senior clergy at Manchester Cathedral just a narrow-minded silo of left-wing like-minded. Are they all the same? Yes, if you look just at the recent history. But no, not if you look further back. There used to be a right-wing voice for the well-off, and I mean narrowly right-wing in the sense of not really interested in the poor. So what can we say? What can we say overall? To call the Manchester Cathedral clergy left wing is pretty superficial. What they really are is conformist members of the establishment. They drift along with the prevailing prejudices of the people in power around them. They take in those prejudices and then speak them out in slightly more religious language. When the powerful people of Manchester were mill owners and magistrates. The cathedral clergy said what those people wanted to hear, even to the extent of reading the Riot Act at Peterloo. And now the establishment of Manchester is what? The Labour Party, with their tight grip on local councils and parliamentary seats, the woke university academics, the BBC editors down at Media City, and of course... The Guardian newspaper, no longer in Manchester, but still shaping the narrative round here from London. Now, they say what that lot want to hear. They call themselves prophetic, but they are not very original or brave. They're not the Tory party at prayer. They're not fully the Labour party at prayer, although that would be closer. They are the establishment at prayer. They are power at prayer. Perhaps they've always been power in play. For more than 200 years the Manchester Cathedral clergy have been weak cowardly conformists. When will they find the courage to ask a searching question about the way this world is run? Maybe William Temple was brave to adopt the Labour Party before they came to power and perhaps John Atherton deserves some credit for coming to terms with the market economy. I bet that raised some eyebrows amongst the cathedral clergy. But those are exceptions. Conventional, conformist and slightly cowardly is the general order of the day. Year in, year out. Century after century. thank you for listening to episode 59 we've got a couple of more weeks to go in our politics series we're going to look at housing colonialism and then of course our summer pop festival who's going to be on stage this year